This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Morning. Everyone, take a deep breath with me. We made it. We're here. I don't know how eventful your morning was, but uh, hopefully we all can settle in and be at peace in this place this morning. My goal, my desire this morning is to take us on a journey and to connect dots, if you will. Most of my lessons, you know, you really don't have to pay much attention to. You know, but this one's different, okay? You're going to have to pay attention. You're going to have to follow along. Uh, it's going to take some, some thought process. It's going to take some jumping and connecting dots. So as they say at theme parks, you know, buckle up and hold on. We're going to take this journey. And I'm excited because I learned a ton through this. And some of you may say, man, that's not, that's not new to me. That's not uh, revolutionary. And that's great. But for me, connecting, sometimes connecting the dots is one of the most powerful faith builders that I can have when it comes to God's Word. I see the, the beauty of it in each verse, but I see the complex beauty of it when, it, when you peel back the layers and you start making connections. So, that's my goal this morning, is to take us through a journey Discussing the presence of God throughout history. The presence of God throughout history and how that affects us today. So I first want to start off by talking about Jacob. And if we'll go back to Jacob in the days where he wasn't doing so well. If you recall, uh, very early on in his uh, life, he, got, he was gotten a wrestling match with his brother and lost. Right? And he lost the birthright because he did not come out first. So immediately he is experiencing trouble. And so he comes up with schemes and plans to purchase Esau's birthright. Recall? Right? Further than that, he goes on to deceive his father and receive his blessings. And he received both the birthright, eventually, and the patriarchal blessing from his father, neither of which appeared to belong to him. You recall while Esau was out hunting in the field that uh, Jacob managed to gain and deceive his father. And if you recall, through that process, Esau was furious and desired that his brother would die or that he could kill his father as soon as his not his father, his brother. As soon as his father had died, his plans were to kill his brother and to regain what he had lost. Also, remember, Rebekah had the plan, okay, I know that Esau wants to kill him, so I'm going to send him off to his, my brother's house, Laban, for a few days, knowing good and well that it wasn't for a few days, that it was indeed to protect his life for some time, and it was under the guise, if to uh, 
her plan was to uh, deceive her husband and send him away in order to what? Find a wife, right? So he's to go to Laban's for a few days to hide out basically from his brother's wrath, okay? So he's in a bad way. And we pick up, if you want to, you can turn there. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, and then we'll pick up some scriptures in Genesis chapter 28. So after knowing that Jacob had gone through all that, here we are in Genesis chapter 28, and it says that Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. This was while he was in his journey toward Laban's. And he said that he was traveling by day and it became night and he he found a stone and he used that stone as a pillow. And as he lay down, he fell asleep in this place. He dreamed and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth and the top of it reached to the heavens. And behold, the angel of God ascending and descending on it. Jacob's ladder. He, he, He in this dream, he saw imagine picture these angels going up and down from earth to heaven on this ladder. That was his vision. And, the, and behold, the angels of the Lord were up and down it. And behold, the Lord stood above it, and he said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac. Now, why would this be important for Jacob? Why would it be so important for God to establish that he was Jacob's God? Well, part of the biggest reason is Jacob was fleeing for his life. And he knew that Abraham had the promise, that Isaac had the promise, and what did Jacob have? Nothing, apparently. Even though he had stolen the birthright and his father's blessing, in his eyes, he was a wanderer. He was, he was all of a sudden brought down to nothing, essentially. And God gave him this vision to say, look, with you, Jacob, I am establishing, establishing something special. And he, and he made this ladder appear, which was vitally significant to us today. And we'll get to that. So he, God stood above him and said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed. So it was like a, a saving miracle for Jacob. Because he thought, my dad had it, my grandpa had it, and here I have just ruined it. But yet God says, no, Jacob, in the midst of your wondering, in the midst of your deception, in the midst of your failures, I have chosen to be your God and I will establish you. Amazing. Jacob didn't deserve that, yet God chose to. It says that, and thy seed will be as the dust of the earth, just like he told Abraham and Isaac. He's he's letting Jacob know that, yes, it it will be fulfilled through you, okay? Okay. So keep this in mind. And in verse 28 of chapter 15, he says, And behold, I am with thee. I am with thee. That is huge. God was wanting Jacob to understand and know that he was with him. And Jacob awoke, awaked out of his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place. Jacob went from a lost wanderer, a failure, and to knowing instantly that God was with him and that he was establishing this place, this place. 
and I knew it not, he said, and was afraid and said, how dreadful is this place? This, he was, it, it, it was so wonderful, it was dreadful to him, it was terrifying. This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows, and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon it. And listen, he said he called the name of this place Bethel. Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. Okay? God established his presence with Jacob on, on Jacob, on the lineage of Abraham, and on this specific location, which we know that the Jews would inhabit for years and would be kicked out of for years and inhabit again, right? God, so what we're talking about this morning is God's spirit or God's presence throughout history. And he establishes it with Abraham, with Isaac, and he continues it through Jacob. And he says, this place where this ladder was is surely the gateway to heaven. It is the house of God. Okay? Remember, we're going to connect dots. That's the first dot. The first dot. This is the house of God. And he used this imagery of a ladder with angels going up and down. This is the gateway to heaven. Okay? Bethel. And it's named Bethel, which means the house of God. Isn't that incredible? The house of God, where he dwells. So for now, with Bethel and this situation with Jacob, let us recognize that God chose to identify himself both with Jacob, with his seed, with his, his parent, his father and his grandfa- grandfather, and also with this place, this specific location. Only time would reveal the full meaning of what Jacob would experience. Only time would reveal to us. So, dot number two on Mount Sinai and with Moses, okay? Follow along. I know it's, pay attention because we will make, we'll go on a neat journey if you'll really focus. So, here we are in Exodus chapter 19, and we'll just read it. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mountain and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that were in the camp trembled. Imagine the scene of of you're down dwelling in, in a valley and you look up and there's this mountain in the distance and on this mountain we see we hear the voice of a trumpet exceeding loud coming from it and Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the nether part of the mount and Mount Sinai was altogether covered with smoke because the Lord had descended upon it with fire imagine the view of that imagine the picture the feeling that we would get if we were, if we were surrounded by that. That's what uh, Moses and the children of Israel at this time experienced. It was altogether on smoke, as if it was on fire, and descended upon it fire, and smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain greatly quaked. All this is meaningful, every single bit of it, guys. That's what's so powerful. Every little bit from the trumpet to the fire, to the smoke, every single bit of this has purpose and value to us today. It's amazing. 
And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. God's presence there on the mountain was terrifying to them, so much so that the people were afraid to draw near. As we read in Exodus 20 here, it says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of a trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, so that they stood afar off and said to Moses, You speak to us, we will listen, but you are the only one that's going to God. Like We're not even going to approach the foot or the base of that mountain because we're too afraid to. And this is all, if you, if you hang on, this all has huge implications to you and I today. Huge. Okay? Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood afar off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God existed. Here they gladly accepted Moses to take responsibility for them. We continue on in Exodus 33 and 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I have found favor in your sight. Please show me now your ways. Moses said, I need to know your plan for me, God. I need to know your purpose for, my, for your people. You said you know me by name. And he said, uh, so let's see, where are we at? Now, therefore, I have found favor in your sight. Please show me your ways that I may know in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation, not just me, but consider your people. We need direction. And God said to him, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. We see God's presence with Jacob as he, as he laid his head on that stone and had the dream of the angels coming up and down the ladder and established himself there in that place. The second dot is he establishes it with Moses and his people. Okay? He said, in verse 15, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from this land. If you're, not, if you're not going with us, then I'm not going. If you're not going with us, we will not leave. He said it was your presence alone, God, that would motivate us and move us to go anywhere that we should go. It, it required your presence. The presence of God is what he required and what he sought after. He said, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? Oh, I love this verse. I love this verse. How shall we know that we have found favor in your sight, God, but that we know that you have gone with us? That we know that your presence abides with us and stays with us wherever we go. The presence of God. Throughout history, it landed on Moses. Is it not you're going with us so that we are distinct? We are, we are not like every nation. How do we know that, that we're special? 
It's your presence that goes with us. And I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth, how do we know we're different? This is what Moses said. The only way that we know that we're different is if God, if your presence is with us. That's the only way. Is if we know that God's presence is with us. Okay? Number, that was number two. Okay? Number three is the tabernacle. Follow along. I know. Follow along. It's good. When all the precautionary boundaries and the separators uh, were in place through the law of Moses, God's presence did come and fill the tabernacle. We see this in Exodus chapter 40. Remember, all the verbiage, all the, the detail is, is purposeful. Every, I mean, it's amazing. Every bit of it is purposeful and has meaning for us today. When the people say, well, how does the Bible... Yeah, that's old. How does it apply? Well, it does. Every, every detail that was given back then was for us. It is. It's amazing. It's not just for Moses. It wasn't just for Jacob. It was so that we would understand our place in history. Okay, so let's read Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting. Does that sound familiar to Moses on, when, as he approached the mountain? Right? A cloud or a thick smoke? Right? That same imagery. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Number three, number one was Jacob and the land of Israel. Okay. Number two was Moses on Mount Sinai with his people. And number three, we see his presence through the tabernacle. Okay. Throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was uh, was taken up from, other, from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. So what did they just tell us? When the cloud moved, the people moved, right? What did they move with? The cloud. His presence, right? The cloud was the representation of His presence. So when, the presence, when His presence moved, guess what? They moved. Because that's what they needed was His presence. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and was on fire by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout their journeys. Moses said, I will not go unless your presence goes with me. Here in this place, the tabernacle, the children, the camp of Israel did not move unless the presence of God moved. Those two things had to be together. 1 Kings 8. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. God's presence filled the tabernacle so that they could not enter. Just like Moses couldn't look upon God's face, on Mount Sinai, just like the children of Israel could not even approach the base of the hill or an animal touch the base of the hill without being dead, right? It was that powerful. The presence of God was that powerful that they couldn't even enter into that room when he was there. I get excited. I'm sorry. I get excited. I, I'm telling you, it's, it's exciting. It's exciting to see how this affects us and our children and Potentially our children's children. 
it's amazing to me. I'm excited about it. <clears throat> God promised that he would restore his people after they went into bondage. After they forsook him, he promised that he would bring them back. Right? So they needed his presence. They wanted his presence. But what did they do? They failed and they walked away after generations from his presence. But in Deuteronomy, he promises, Now when all these things happen to you, the blessing and the curse that I have set before you, as you remember them in all the nations where the Lord your God has exiled you, if you turn to the Lord your God and listen to him just as I am commanding you, you and your descendants... will be gathered together again as my people. He promised them that. Even though they went through that hard time, they walked away from him. God promised that he would bring them back as his people. So we move on to our fourth dot. We take this journey. Okay, We go from where we see Jacob and the ladder and the angels descending up and down. Okay, And we see through Moses on Mount Sinai, then we see his presence fill the tabernacle, and now we see what Solomon built, the temple, okay? <clears throat> so this, talk a little bit about the temple here that was built by Solomon. Uh, Israel's sin resulted in departure of God's glory, and they went into Babylonian captivity, we know, but, and he warned them. This was, this was their warning after they had built the temple, this was God's warning. But if your people ever turn away from me, if they fail to obey the regulations and rules I have instructed you to keep and decide to serve and worship other gods, then I will remove you from my land I have given you. I will abandon this temple. This was Solomon's temple. I will abandon this temple. I have consecrated with what? My presence. He said, if you don't obey me, if you don't keep my commandments, I am going to remove my presence from you. And he did exactly what he said he would do. They suffered greatly as we read through the Old Testament. They were scattered abroad. They wondered the temple was destroyed. And then here we pick up again in Ezra. The day finally came for God to restore his, his people and to bring them back, and with the promise of the temple being restored. In Ezra chapter 3, verse 10, this is what he says, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets and Levites and the and sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the direction the king of David of Israel. And they sang uh, responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when, the, when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. The temple was being restored. And what did that represent? It represented His presence dwelling with His people again. And they knew that. They knew the power that was in that. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers, so the old timers, uh, the old timers here, 
The old men who had, been, who had seen the first temple, they wept with a loud voice when they had saw the foundation of this house being laid. They wept when they saw the foundation being rebuilt of this temple. Why? Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping. That's strange, is it not? That, that description of what happened. Here, half the house of Israel, the young folks are praising God because they're seeing uh, a promise of God come to fruition. The other half, the old folks, are crying because they look at the foundation and you know what they see? They see that it wasn't the same as the original temple. It didn't have the the glory. It didn't have the, the luster. It wasn't as beautiful. Through the prophet Haggai, God addresses this morning, doesn't he? He he explains it to us. He says that as he speaks to all these leaders, he says, Take heart, Joshua, son of a hard word to say, the high priest, and all you citizens of the land, take heart, says the Lord. Take heart, says the Lord. When the Lord says take heart, he means something, right? He wants you to to be at ease, to feel comforted. Take heart, my children, take heart. And he began to work. For I am what? I am with you. Take heart, children, I am with you. I got in a real sticky situation one time, and I called my dad because he's the only one I knew that could help me. And he came and he helped me. His presence alone was all that I needed. That's it. Take heart, my children. I'm present. I'm with you. Take heart. For I am with you, says the Sovereign Lord. Do not fear because I made a promise to your ancestors when they left Egypt, and my spirit even now testifies to you. Moreover, the Sovereign Lord says, In just a little while I will once again shake this earth and sky, the sea and the dry ground, and I will shake up the nations, and they will offer their treasures. And I will fill this temple with glory. We can't, it's hard for us to imagine what that meant to them, to know that God was establishing his presence among their people after it felt like it had been gone so long. Since the silver and the gold will be mine, says the Lord, the coming splendor of this temple will be greater than that of former times. So while the old timers are weeping and crying because the splendor of the temple was not what it once was, God says that I am going to restore the temple better than it was. Well, what do you mean by that? It wasn't better. It didn't physically look better. It wasn't more attractive or more impressive. What changes it was his presence was filling it. That's what made it glorious. It wasn't the exterior beauty of it or the interior intricacies uh, of the stone. It was his presence. The weeping of the old timers 
was all about the external beauty of it or the physical beauty. It did not have the splendor of the first. It was not great in man's eyes, but yet we see that through Haggai, the splendor of the Lord, his presence was what made it glorious. How does this, why does this, any of this matter to us? Why does it matter that God established himself with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And Jacob thought he had lost it. And God reveals to him in a dream that, no, this place is important where I will establish my presence. And then years pass, and he establishes it with Moses on the mountain. And he lets the people know that it's my presence that you need. It's my presence that protects you. And from there we go to the tabernacle where we see smoke and clouds that, that represented God's presence so that no one could even enter when his presence was there. And when it left, they left to the temple, which God said, I will make more glorious than the first because my presence is there. The presence of God has been transferred throughout history on purpose and with a purpose for great value. <clears throat> we see thousands of years passed in this process. Thousands of years. A lot has happened if you, it takes a long time to read the Old Testament, right? It takes a long time to understand the intricacies of it and what all happened. But it all happened to lead up to this dot. That's, all you, that's, that's what you need to know, is that it all happened to lead up to this dot. Each dot was necessary and had to happen before it, you connected the next dot. The next dot is Jesus. The glory of the Lord that once dwelt in tabernacles, that once dwelt in the temple, it landed now squarely on Jesus. And the Word became flesh. And, and as we go through this part, as we make these connections, remember the verbiage, the, the, the phrases, the words that he uses. Temple, building, structure, foundation. All of those things, those things transfer that, that terminology transfers as we see time progress through those, all those dots, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, as we go on. It's the same terminology that's used the entire time. This building, right? This structure, and it's so amazing. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, that no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Just like God wanted Moses and his people and Jacob to know that it was his presence that was vital, Jesus wanted us to know that as well. John wanted people to know that as well. 
Because notice that when he says that he dwelt among us, it's like he, he took residence in us. Right? Like a dwelling place. A building. He took residence. He built a home. Now remember, this is where it gets kind of crazy. Remember Jesus' conversation with Nathaniel. Does it, y'all, anyone recall that? Where it talks about Philip and Nathaniel, and we found whom you know, the prophets speak of, Moses and the law. He comes from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, mm, I'm not so sure that anything good comes from Nazareth. Remember that conversation? Is that striking some chords? Can anything good come from Nazareth, he says. Philip said to him, come and see. (laughs) Come and see. And then when Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. That's what Nathanael said of Jesus. In verse, uh, I'll paraphrase it. Nathan said to him, so Jesus said this of, of Nathanael, and Nathanael says, how do you know? How do you know this about me? And then Jesus said, I saw you when you were underneath the fig tree. It blew Nathaniel's mind. Right? It blew his mind. It seems like such a weird interaction, does it not? What's the point of the fig tree? What's the whole point of Nazareth being not a place of any reputation? How do you know me? I saw you while you were underneath the fig tree. And then Nathaniel answered him, because, because Jesus saw him, what he was doing long before he actually saw him, he said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, he said, Because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, you now believe me? Now he says this, and this is all that leads up to Jesus to say this next phrase. He says that you will see greater things than that. You will see greater things than that. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Does that look any what similar to what we've discussed already this morning? The dream that Jacob had hundreds of years before was to show and to prove to him and us that God's presence dwelt with Jacob, God uses the exact same imagery to tell us that God's presence now dwells on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Is that not amazing? Jacob 
in a dream hundreds of years before, saw angels ascending and descending on this ladder to prove his presence. And now Jesus has the presence. And he proves it by saying that you will see angels ascending and descending on this Son of Man. The transfer of presence is now on Jesus. And if you need more proof, then I can't help you. I just can't help you. That's the best I got, okay? Is that not amazing? To look back hundreds of years and see that Jacob's dream had such purpose. And it was all to point to Jesus. Every bit of it. If you think that the Old Testament wasn't a, a point, wasn't uh, <laughs> to bring us in the direction of Jesus, you're fooled. You're plain fooled. He says, you see Jacob's ladder in me, and now you see God's presence dwelling with me, the Son of Man. I love that. I love the imagery. I love, I love everything about it. And it, it sharpens me, and it, and it emboldens my faith to see the connection that should not be there. That should not be there, but it is. And it's only by the power of God and the purpose of God that it's there. So, just as we, we, when we think of the tabernacle, we see now Jesus tabernacling, right? Making his dwelling, his presence with us. That transfer of God's presence is now with Jesus, who he sends to you and I, to the world. This theme is picked up, if you go over to John chapter 2, this theme is picked up uh, when we look at Jesus when he goes into the temple, when he's angry. It says that when he went to Capernaum with his brothers, mothers, disciples, there was the Jewish feast of the Passover that was going on or was near. He said that he, he saw that they were making a, a selling place of his father's temple, right? Of this place that should have been of God, right? And it... <laughs> It's no surprise that he, he's, he's at the temple fixing to make a, an amazing point, right? He, he's at this place. He throws a fit of anger at this place for such an amazing reason. It's not by random coincidence that he goes to the temple, the temple this day and makes this point, and I'll get to it. But he, it's, it's so amazing when you realize why he's there. He's there to make a point. And it's not, the point is not why are you selling doves at, you know, that, you're saying can only be sacrificed to atone for sins. It's not that, that there's money changers there. It's much more than that, okay? At surface, that's what it is. It says that he made a whip of cords and he drove them out of the temple courts. The sheep and the oxen, the, the tables and the money was scattered everywhere. And he yells, do not make my father's house a marketplace. My father's house, he says. Remember, structure, a building, a temple, a tabernacle, a house. All of these are structures that we can imagine. Do not make my father's house a marketplace. And his disciples remembered what was written, that the zeal of the house will devour me. <clears throat> Jesus replied, destroy this temple. Right? He's there at this moment for this purpose, to say these words. He says, destroy this temple, the temple 
that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the high and mighty of the time loved and, and thought was the, where the presence of God dwelt. And they were in for a rude awakening because Jesus said that this temple will be destroyed in three days. And I will raise it up again. I will raise it up again. That's why he went into the temple. He went into the temple to tell them that the presence of God was not in the temple. It wasn't there. It wasn't in that building. Listen to this. The temple has been under construction for 46 years, and are you going to raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. He had to prove because throughout history, man was so accustomed to God dwelling in a physical building. The temple, the tabernacle, they would, they, they would, the tabernacle was in such a way that they could, they could pack it up and move it. Because they were so accustomed to God's presence, His actual physical presence, dwelling in a physical place that you and I could see. But all of this happened, this transpired. He went to the temple that day not to get mad at, at people exchanging money or doves or anything, but to prove to you and I that there is no place, no physical place that you and I can go and experience the presence of God. It's only through the body of His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the only place, He said, that the presence of God now dwells. That is powerful. That is huge to us. And all of it is to point to that, was what amazes me. Every dot connects and has such value to us, such depth and purpose. But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. He was blowing minds. Because they had no idea that the presence of God could dwell in a human, what they saw as a human being. And that he would transform the world, as it were. Every encounter that is recorded in God's Word has value and purpose. We look at the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. The same exact thing is played out. Every word, every phrase, every thought that Jesus wanted her to know, He wants us to know. You want to feel the power of God, understand that what He says to her is what He says to us and what He means for us to understand. Okay, Let's go through this real quick. Jesus and the woman at the well. We know that uh, he's there, he sees her, and uh, she's shocked by him. And Jesus said to her, believe me, woman, a time is coming. So the woman says to him, basically, I see that you're a prophet. Now tell me, because you're, you're wise and you have wisdom, show me, tell me, is it, uh, where do we worship? Uh, some people say in Jerusalem, other people say this place. And he said to her, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain, nor in Jerusalem, where what? The temple is. Okay, he's trying to establish that. <clears throat> you people worship what you don't know, he says. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, he talks about. That's what he tells her, that someday true worshipers will worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. 
And when he comes, he'll tell us everything. Now listen to this. Jesus said to her, I, the one that's speaking to you, am he. Why was that significant? The significance of that was, I am the place you worship. Not a temple, not a mountain, not a physical location. I am the place of worship. I am that ladder, essentially, that bridges heaven and earth, as Jacob saw in a dream. Is it all starting to come together a little bit, isn't it? It's amazing. I believe that Jesus is telling this woman a lot more than she can understand at that time. Just like Moses could not understand what was happening. Jacob could not understand how his history would play out and affect us. He wants her to know that it's no longer a place, a matter of where to worship, but a matter of who to worship. A matter of who to worship. Now, the next dot, we read in John chapter 16, the first part of verse 7, he says, The Comforter will come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. The disciples were blown away when he talked to his when when they talked to Jesus in uh, in John. He says that it's expedient. Remember when he tells the disciples that it's expedient that I go away in order that right that which is better than me or has more value than me to you will come. They were they were just like the rest of them before were blown away from this thought this processing. They they could not understand how that. Jesus, whom God, obviously His presence dwelt with, they believed that it would depart, that Jesus would depart, and then what would happen, right? They would be left like what? Moses wandering in the wilderness. That's what they thought. But Jesus explained to them, and, and I even wonder when I read that verse, that how is it possible that it could be better than what Jesus, what Jesus was, what He offered? But He says, it's expedient that I go away and send to you the Comforter. Remember when Jesus talks about rivers of living water. In John, he talks about that. He says, If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. And he said, Out of his belly shall rivers of living water flow, speaking of himself. But, it, but listen to this, he said, But this he spake of the Spirit, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given the Holy Ghost was not yet given because Jesus has, had not yet been glorified. Jesus had the presence of God dwelling in him. Jesus told them that I have to leave in order for you to gain something even better. He said that rivers of water shall flow out of this, but you can't have it yet because Jesus hasn't left yet. The Spirit. The dot goes from Jesus to the Holy Spirit. And I think that's a dot that I have not connected very well in the past. And we can read throughout scriptures and see what the power of the Holy Spirit did. Uh, it, had, it gave the apostles the ability to call into remembrance things that they normally couldn't. It, had, it empowered their preaching, God's word says. But most of all, this was the way that the Spirit 
that Jesus Christ himself was infect, in, in, uh, introduced into the veins of the church. Jesus didn't directly inject himself through a needle into our veins. He injected the spirit into our veins, into the veins of the church. The transfer of God's presence went from Jesus to the spirit. That's huge to understand. Remember when Stephen was being stoned? And he, what, do you remember what he was being stoned for? It was because he was talking, he was basically speaking blasphemy against the temple. And when he was being stoned, remember that he looked up into heaven and he said that, I see God, I see Jesus dwelling at the right hand of the Father. While he spoke of the temple in a negative way, he wanted people to realize that the temple... The transfer of God's presence had been given to the one who was at the right hand of the Father. And that man, Jesus, transferred the presence of God with great wisdom and purpose to the Holy Spirit. Now, why does all that matter? Because, amazingly enough, it was all for the purpose of the church. All that was for the purpose of the church. And that should amaze us. That should, that should, when we read through the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, no matter what happened, when we see that God did everything in order to allow the church to be a dot in His presence, that should have a major impact on the way we live our lives. The teaching of the New Testament is that God now dwells in the church through His Spirit. God's presence was transferred from Jesus to His Spirit. And now look what happens. You, we see some amazing similarities, and I'll touch this briefly. Okay, Look at this as we read in, in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles. Now when Solomon had made the end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the house, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And all the, all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down, and the glory of the Lord came upon the house. They bowed, and they worshiped, and they praised God. They knew that God's presence had, had entered the building because of the fire, because of the... What else happened there? The glory of the Lord had filled it because of the fire that came down and they knew that he had taken up residence then and there at that place. Notice the imagery. How fire filled the Lord's house. And when they saw this, they bowed down and they glorified the Lord. It says that a fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering. Why is that significant? It was, now listen, it was to prove that God's presence was there now. Now look at the imagery we see here in Acts chapter 2. Look at that. Remember when 
before the day of, uh, you know, Acts chapter 2, 38, we, the day of Pentecost, we know when the church started. Look, look what happened right before the church started. Look at the imagery. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord, the apostles, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Does that not sound exactly like what just happened? Exactly like what just happened. And listen to this. And they appeared unto them cloven tongues as it were fire. Why did this happen this way? Why was fire used intentionally? Why was fire part of what happened in Chronicles? God filled the church with His presence that day. That day, God filled the church with His presence and made it known to all of us and throughout history from then on that God's presence was in the church. And we see that same chapter that the church is established by the same very men who had denied Jesus not long beforehand. What changed? God's presence filled and established the church. It established the church, guys. All of that happened so that God could have His presence here now with you and with me. And if that isn't transforming, I don't know what is. <clears throat> now let's examine ourselves a little bit. As now that we know and understand that all of those things were very purposeful. The, the Holy Spirit could have come down, like a, and, it, and we see it on Jesus like a dove, right? Well, why didn't, it, why didn't it come down on the apostles that met in that room as a dove? Because it needed to be earth-shaking, right? It needed to cause trembling and fear and it, to make its presence known to all the world that God's presence now dwelt in the church. God's building the church, right? Like a mighty army band. I could sing it, but I won't. Okay, Clint wants to right now. I can see it in his face. Ephesians chapter 2. Now let's examine church this morning. Let's examine ourselves as a church body. That's, that's the ultimate focus I want this morning. Okay, Bear with me as we make the last connections. Let's examine ourselves as a church. Okay, So then you are no longer foreigners and non-citizens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of God's household because you have been built. Remember the foundation. Remember the building, the, the construction. He says you have been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone, as the foundation, as the one piece that's the most important. In him, the whole building being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, that, that strike us as pretty amazing when you get to be a brick, and you get to be a brick, and you get to be a brick that's built on that foundation of Jesus Christ, which the apostles fought for and built because the Holy Spirit came down on them to establish God's presence in the church. We get to be a brick in that building. We get to be a brick in that building. But you know what? We are individual bricks. You're a brick. You're a brick. But it's not the individual nature of the bricks that are, are, have any value. If you took, I don't know who has a brick house in here. Mine's siding, but yours is brick, right? Take every brick apart and lay them on the ground and see how good that does for you. Right? You still got the same amount of bricks. It just, they have no value until they're put together. 
you and I have zero value by ourselves in the church. Zero value. We're just a brick laying on the ground. But when you start stacking us up on that cornerstone, on that foundation which God says His presence is in, then we become something. Does that make sense? Does that start to have value and power to us? In this whole building, we are like a building, a structure, he says, being joined together that grows into a holy temple. What's, what, why does the temple matter there? Because God's presence was in the temple. Now we are the temple which God takes up residence in through the Holy Spirit. I love the dots. It's amazing to me. I was going to change slides, but Janice said, no, hold on a second. <laughs> so we're being built together, in a, and we're being built. We're not, we're not built, Right? We're not built. It's not done being built. That's the beauty of it. We're being built together into this amazing structure. Okay? 2 Corinthians, Paul goes on, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Baal? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? He goes into it again, the, this temple, this building. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? What partnership does the church have with the world? This foundation, these individual bricks that have come together to form this building, what partnership do we have with the world? None. What partnership does Christ have with Satan or evil? None. That's how much partnership we should have with the world, church. That's what he's trying to tell us. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them. Right? Isn't that what Moses wanted? Isn't that what Jacob wanted? Isn't that what the children of Israel wanted? Was God's presence to be with them. And that's exactly what he says he gives us as the church today. Right here and right now. He says that I will make my dwelling among them. And I will walk among them. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. The exact same thing that the children of Israel were told. Is what we're told today. Through the church. So when we look at each other, when we think about the value of coming to this place, we underestimate its power. We underestimate its purpose and its value tremendously. I think it's because we see each other as individual bricks. And oftentimes we see ourselves as just one brick. And that's a shame. We are missing out. I have been missing out on what I, what, what I should see the church as. And, I have been, and it's sad because... All of that was to bring us to the church. Everything that Moses went through, everything that Jacob experienced, and Abraham and Isaac, all of that process with, with God saying, okay, I'm going to leave, the, I'm going to scatter you abroad for a while so that you can come back into me. He tells the church the same thing. It's no different. All that has been to bring us to the church age where we can dwell in the presence of God in the church, but it's only in the church. Right? It's only in the church. Now, in the background, you can see these two conflicting mountains. One's low and one's high. And I want, I want to give us this description, this, this vivid imagery of what that looks like. For you, now this is Hebrews. Now, this ties it together. This is like glue that binds them. He says, for you have not come to what may not be touched, or what may be touched, a blazing fire, a darkness, a gloom. He's referring to that mountain. Right? Where Moses was. 
You have, not, you have not seen that mountain. That's not the process that you went through to understand salvation or God's uh, presence with you. And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made hearers beg that no further message be spoken. Remember, they were so afraid, they said, we can't even hear it. We can't look upon it. Uh, Moses, you have got to be our mediator. That's not how you've learned Christ. That's not how you've experienced God's presence with fear and trembling. He says, for they could not endure the order that was given. They couldn't even handle it. Even a beast that touched the mountain would be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying in the sight of Moses that I tremble with fear. That's the imagery we get with Moses when he experienced the presence of God. But he said, this isn't for you. That's not for you, the Hebrew writer says. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. The city of the living God. Man. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God and the judge of all, and to the spirit of righteousness made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe as the church. For God is a consuming fire. He's a consuming fire, just like He consumed on the mountain. His presence was made known in the tabernacle. It was made known in the temple. It was made known in the church. In fire. But He says, we haven't learned Christ like Moses did with fear and trembling. Our God is a consuming fire. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, and again, I focus on the words here. Look at what the words represent. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, Moses couldn't enter the holy place. Right? The children of Israel, unless you were a priest, could not enter the holy place. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. Remember the veil that was torn? Right? All this imagery represents what was and how it was that God's presence was known. And since we have a great priest... We have somebody that can go in and make atonement for our sins. This great priest who was not the priest of Moses' time, right? A great priest over the house of God, a building, a structure. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Knowing all this, we ought to be pure, church. We ought to focus on cleanliness and righteousness and holiness. And even further than that, he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering, and let us consider how we can stir one another up to love and to good works. Now, this next verse... 
<clears throat> is baffling to me. Not, it always seemed just kind of random. It always just seemed kind of like, hey, come to church. You know, we need to be here, and it's important, and, you know, it's like uh, you got to be a good example for your kids, you know, and, man, I just don't really want to go today, or I have, I've really misunderstood this verse. But in context of what I understand now about the value of what God built in Acts chapter 2, and then every dot backwards, this, this makes sense now, does it not? This last verse. And not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the, the, the day approaching, the day drawing near. Now, does it, it makes sense. It doesn't seem quite so judgmental. It doesn't seem quite so harsh when we see the value in us coming together. Because alone, we're just, a, we're just a stone. We're just a brick. We have no value in and of ourselves. God placed value seemingly in the church. In the connection of you and I together. As much as you hate that. As much as you may hate that Dane has to be a part of that building. Because he drives you crazy. You're stuck with me. Doesn't that put into perspective the value of church? It's not just for our good. It's not just so that we might not sin this coming week. It's so that we might dwell in the presence of God. Because He resides in the church through Jesus Christ. You see the foundation that's built that He started with with Abraham. And now it culminates in you and I. It's, it's not right. <laughs> It's not fair, but it's the way it is. I want to go through about 12 slides or so of verses that contain the phrase one another. All right? I, want to put a, I want to put our church in, con, in context. I want, when we look at our building from the outside or people look by, yeah, that's a pretty building. They keep it up nice. Oh, it's cute. You know, it's a, oh, it's old timey. But what's inside this church? What, what resides in our hearts as individual bricks when we come together? What are you made of? What are you made of? I, I very rarely find the word saying, you know, that individually we are, are amazing. I very rarely find, you know, what I do find is that when the Bible talks about us specifically, he says to examine ourselves. Very rarely is it anything about building up or puffing up or or exalting the individual, but typically it's about examine yourself. It's about get the moat out of your eye before you go to your brother, right? But look at the way it's communicated when we look at the church. And this one phrase, one another. We're going to go through these really briefly, okay? And then we'll, we'll end. This is my commandment. And church, this is what I want us to hear this morning, okay? God did all that so that we would know this. So that we would treat each other like these verses. And if we don't, then we're failing as a church. We are failing. This is what God wanted us to know. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor preferring one another. Wherefore, receive ye one another. 
as Christ also received us to the glory of God. And I myself am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. That should be a quality of the church. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, but don't use liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Derek, you cannot serve me if you're not with me. It's impossible. I can't love Jason if I'm not with him. It's impossible. It's impossible. I, Clint can't experience Kit's love unless Kit shows it to him. It's impossible. Bear ye one another's burdens and complete the law of Christ. Are we bearing one another's burdens as we should as a church? Are we admonishing one another as we should as a church? I want to. Are, are, maybe we are. But I know that we should. With all lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another. That means you've got to put up with me. <laughs> the good, the bad, and the ugly. Right? Forbear. Be patient with me, Brian. Okay? <laughs> Be patient with me, honey, because I fail. Girls, I'm the best dad ever, so you're good. <laughs> Be patient with me. Forbear. Have forbearance towards me. The church cannot survive without forbearance. You know, they can't. It can't. It can't survive. We're just too too different, right? We're too complex individually. But yet, each of those bricks, you know, bricks have to be the same size in order to be stacked properly and for a house to be built. Go ahead and mix two different sized bricks and try to build me a house. I dare you. We're so different, yet in Christ we're exactly the same. Every joint supplies, right? Every part has a value. All right, let's continue. Forbearing one another in love, and be ye kind one to another, tended hearted, forgiving one another. Isn't that an important part of the church? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to make you mad. Clint and I have been together for a long time in this church, and I have made him mad. And at times he's come to me and said, Dane, you made me mad. You upset me. You did something. You said something. And we reconciled. That's what love is. That's what the church is. Right? If, if he doesn't admonish me for my mistakes, then we can't have that honest heart-to-heart conversation and, and he, then he can't on the, uh, reciprocate forgiveness and forbearance and patience and forgiveness. He can't do that. There, all these are so intertwined that you can't leave one without the other or you're a broken church. And we've seen it, right? Have we not? The church is dysfunctional because it doesn't represent the Spirit of Christ because I believe that God doesn't, He isn't dwelling among us. Not us necessarily here specifically, but churches in America today. God's presence is nowhere to be found because these traits aren't there. They've got to be in our church, okay? This is all we have, you know, flock over, right? This is all we have control over is us right here. These things better be in our church. They better be in our church. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Doesn't that give much more value now to why we sing in the mornings when we come together or why 
when we fellowship together, that we get together and sing or we pray together, we build each other up in the most holy faith when we come together. All these things start to have more value when we see the purpose behind them. No man has seen God at any time, but if we love one another, that God dwells within us. But if we don't love each other as we should, then God removes himself from us. It's that simple, and it's that terrifying at the same time that God can remove himself from our presence if we lack love for each other. True, forgiving, patient, selfless love. Right? He won't dwell here. He won't dwell here. He won't dwell here unless we have these things. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. Isn't that what it takes to make a marriage last and work? Are we not a big family here? Within my family, I just got something in my eye. That's all it is. There's a lot of forgiving. There's a lot of heart-to-hearts. There's a lot of, uh, of stepping on toes and offending. Why do we think that it should be any different with our church family? It's an extension. It is exactly what we experience at home where we have openness and honesty, where we have uh, hard times and we have forgiveness and we have calling out of sins and we have reconciliation and forgiveness and, and long-suffering. If, if our church is any different than our families and we're missing the mark, that transparency, you know, that abiding love. When I think of my wife, there's nothing. Or my family, my, you know, like my dad or my family. They're, they're your family. They're intrinsic. They're, they're blood. You know, it's like, it's like you're meant to reconcile with them, right? It's, it's in, in our nature. Well, God wants that nature to be within our church as well, the exact same nature. That's why we're called the sons and daughters of God, because we are now a family, just like our individual families are made up of, of some bad things, some history. We bring that to the church, and, and God says, now you, you're a family. Make it work. But I'm going to give you some tools to make it work. And he gives us exactly what it needs for us to succeed and survive and thrive as a church. And it's, it's shameful on us and, and a pity if we, if we neglect these things. It really is. <clears throat> Wherefore, comfort yourselves together. There's a lot of comforting going on right now, isn't there? I need comfort. Brian and I prayed to comfort each other the other, the, yesterday morning because we need comfort. Now, don't leave that out. But exhort one another daily. Now that verse has great value. The daily has a great value to us, right? Because it's necessary that daily we invest ourselves in each other's lives for the, for the value of the church, for the growth of the church, and for God, and, and ultimately for God's presence to dwell within us. That's the ultimate goal. And if His presence dwells within us, then we can achieve anything that He wants us to, Right? There's no doubt in my mind. So exhort one another daily while it's today, while it's called today, lest any of you, lest we lose one. Neglect me for a time and see how bad off I get. Neglect loving me. Neglect investing in me and see how well off I am in a short time period. I promise you there's hardening of hearts. There's a loss of value in someone's own mind, and you begin to see the value of the church. We exhort each other daily while it's called today. 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Let us consider one another. Notice all these, none of these things say consider yourself. <laughs> you think you're having a bad day? Just stop and just consider yourself for a second. You know, stop and think about you for a minute. That is pivotal. In my studies of this, that is pivotal. The focus is not on you. It's not on me. The focus is on the phrase, one another. And let us understand that as the church. Let, us, let that be our battle cry. <laughs> one another. Right? One another. When the church breaks down, it's because each individual starts caring for themselves only. And it happens one at a time sometimes. I may be the worst example of that. And then you take after me. Or maybe I'm that example in my home that it's all about me. It's all about dad or it's all about husband. And there's a breakdown in my family. And then I'm a bad example to Clint or Kit. And he's, you know, they see that. Or, or maybe you wives neglect your husbands. Maybe you don't reverence them or care for them or show them respect. And otherwise think, wow, man, that's the way I ought to act. You know, and fuel the fire. See how it's dangerous. All those things are dangerous. And our example of one another is so important and pivotal in the growth, the success, and God's presence dwelling within our congregation. And us thriving and flourishing as Christians. Let us consider one another. and to prov- We need to provoke each other to good works. Right? Sometimes you need to kick me in the tail and say, get off your rear and get to work. Dane, let's go do this. Let's go do that. Sometimes my wife has to do that. Right? Sometimes my kids have to do that. Provoke one another to good works. This is an important, vital part of the church. Not forsaking the assemblings of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love. Unfeigned love, that's pure love, perfect love, without spot, without blemish, without anything standing in the way. This is the kind of love that we should have for one another, the kind that we love one another with a pure heart fervently. I need your love fervently. I need it pure. You need mine. We are bound to thank God always for you, brother, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly and charity, and the charity of every one of you toward each other abounds. Does our faith and our charity, our love abound to each other? Kids, this includes you. It includes every single one of us. You're a stone, you're a brick in the, in the mortar, in the building, exactly like your parents. No different. What are you contributing to the church? What are you contributing to your friends? What example are, are we setting for each other? It's, these things are pivotal in all age groups. That we love one another fervently. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another. He says, finally, bless all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Bless, for this is what you are called for, to bless others. To live your life investing in other people's lives. That's the church. So we can see that the value of the church is pretty evident.
<clears throat> we cannot be the church if we look like ordinary people. Paul said, I and I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual. He's talking about this, this, he's talking about Christians, fellow Christians, Christians that he had converted, likely, most of these. And he said, brethren, I could not speak unto you as spiritual things because you're like ch children. He says, I, I had to speak unto you in, in a carnal way, in a childlike way. I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither are you able to now. For ye are carnal, you are earthly minded, and whereas there is among you envying, strife, and division. Now he says, are you not carnal and walk as men? You look like ordinary people. Have you ever heard anybody say, I'm not coming to church, I'm not going to church because, man, everybody there, they're hypocrites, right? We've all heard that statement before. Man, what a, a skewed vision of the church some people have. I hope that's never the case for this congregation. Do you walk around, do we as individuals walk around as ordinary men, carnally minded, that cannot be fed with anything but milk? Conduct yourselves, do we conduct ourselves as worldly people? <clears throat> I, the purpose of the church, you know, we'll, this is where the, it, it, the rubber meets the road for us. John 17 says, Neither pray I for, uh, for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Now remember, we, at our peacemaking deal the other night, the guy kind of stole some of my thunder, and I kind of got mad about it, and it's not fair, it's not right, but here it is. This is, this is some, some depth, too, that he talked about. So he's talking, Jesus is talking about the disciples. He's praying for them. He says, God, be with them that they can do these wonderful things. And then he says here in this next verse, in verse 20, he says, I'm not just praying for these who I had been praying for, the disciples. He said, I'm also praying for them also which shall believe in, on me through their word, through the writing of the apostles, that they all may be one. That's what, that's what he wants us to be one. That's the whole purpose. That's the reason those things were written. That's the reason Jesus prayed is that we might be one. One. That they all may be one as Father, as, as thou, Father, art with me and I with thee, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. It's through the church and the way that we can do those one another's that we're going to show the world that Jesus is the Son of God. Even more impactful than what Derek does at work for his co-workers. That's valuable, but ultimately what he says is the church is, what represent, is now the representation of God or Jesus Christ. It is what brings hearts to Jesus. It is what's, what brings salvation or knowledge of salvation that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given to you. The glory which I have given I have now given to you, and you and you, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be perfect, made perfect in one. The world may know that you have sent me. Jesus, while on earth, revealed himself to the world, but now he has formed the church, and he reveals himself through us.
believe it or not. Yesterday, uh, we had the ability to go and serve and help a brother, that, uh, a guy that we know. And you know what? There were some dads that weren't there. There were some moms that weren't there. There were some kids that weren't there. But you know what? They were there. Every single one of you was there. You know, I got to thinking about this because it's you that spurns me on to do good. When I go and I do anything, or you go and do anything good, it's, you're not representing yourself. You represent the church. So yesterday, those few of us that could go, we didn't go as a representation of Dane, or this person, or that person. We went as a representation of every individual member of this congregation. And you know what? Next time, I may not be able to go, but you know what? You represent me. Isn't that amazing? And moms, you, you weren't there. You didn't swing a hammer. You didn't have the, the luxury of getting to use a nail gun, right, next to Clint's head. Yeah, it was great. You, didn't, you weren't there, but you were because you dedicated yourself to your husbands by allowing them that time. You see how all these things are vital to the church, and every single one of us is valuable. Even if we weren't there yesterday, you had great value because you spurned me on by your example. That's amazing to me. We don't represent ourselves when we go and do anything. We represent God's presence dwelling among the church. Man, that's exciting to me. That is exciting. And another thing I love about church is, to me, there's no hope for gain. Right? So many relationships are built upon what can I get from that person. Right? You know, oh, he's really good at business. I think I'll try, to, I'll try to see if maybe we can work something out where we split this, you know, profit 50-50 because he adds value. Or she, she is really good at math, so I'm going to see if I can't make some money off her math abilities. The church doesn't work that way. I love that. You don't, you don't come to me. You don't love me because of the, of the profit that I can bring you. Man, I love that about the church. That makes our, our uh, relationships pure and makes them honest. And I love that. So what have we learned today? This is what I hope we learned. The most challenging thing is life. What, I'll say this. What is the most challenging thing in life? I'll say this. What is the most rewarding thing in life? Anybody have a one-word answer? Relationships. <laughs> the most challenging thing in the world, the most the greatest blessing that we can ever experience. Those two are wrapped up in one. And God says, here you go. Make it work. I'm going to give you every tool you need. Number one. Number two, our love for one another must go beyond human emotions. Forgiving, being long-suffering, patient, those are not natural to us. Okay? They go beyond our human emotions. They must. Number three, the church is God's presence here on earth, and we must understand that. We must live that way. We, or the spirit that's in, the Spirit-inspired church, us, must represent Him well. And number five, there is no room for self in this church. Only one another. Only room for one another. God bless you this morning, and uh, God bless our church. Uh, as individuals, bless God bless us. And as a foundation that God 
has his presence here among us. I, I pray that for our church and for each of us. I'll leave you with that. Thank you for your attention. Let's stand and sing. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71, Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.